what they do is they keep hacking away at the system and then saying, look how bad it is. It's really terrible. And they chop another piece of it out and say, oh, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. We got to get rid of it. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we are in the thick of talking about terms related to health care policy here in the U.S. There are so many of them. We left off talking about Medicaid a little bit, and there is an issue of Medicaid expansion that was to do with the Affordable Care Act, and looming is also this issue of Medicaid contraction being proposed by Trump Care or Ryan Care or whatever we're calling it. What can we say about those things? Well, the Medicaid expansion, which we'll talk about in just a second, um, was an important part of the ACA, but it's the part that has been most targeted by the Republicans. And one of the proposals that they've made is to make Medicaid into a block grant program. Now, this is something they've done in many, many other issues where they've tried to take away control from the federal government, uh, regulation by the federal government, hand it to state legislators and governors. Uh, who anybody who pays close attention to politics knows are not nearly as likely to care for people who are down and out and really need help. And so when they say block grants, it's all part of this language of the states know best what to do. But by saying there's a fixed chunk of money rather than a stream of money, you inevitably have to cut people and say, well, I'm sorry, you actually technically qualify for Medicaid, but uh, we've run out of money this year, so you don't get any. And that's exactly what they're aiming at. But uh, the language they use is all in terms of states' rights instead of just saying, well, let them die. Well, there's also an element of we're being fiscally conservative. Right. And we keep circling back time and again in our discussion about how there's no shortcut to saving money on health care, really. And it is necessary. And not providing health care or doing things that limit health care, uh, limit people's access to health care, ultimately only ends up shooting you in the foot. Because if people aren't healthy and they can't get along by their own power, they just become a worse and worse burden. Now, Maybe if the state is not providing that care, maybe sometimes families will turn and provide that care. Well, that just means a whole bunch of other money that's not not flowing out into the general economy and so on and so on. And economists have done a good job, I think, of proving that uh, limiting health care and limiting people's access to health care is an economic non-winner. It's a big, fat loser. Well, another issue that's often talked about is that people without insurance often wind up going to the emergency room for their care, and that costs a fantastic amount of money. Hospitals are required to treat people who come in and need emergency care, so that's why they go there. But then the hospitals have to raise their fees for everything else, and insurance companies have to cover those fees, and so insurance goes up, and we all wind up paying for it. The problem is it's so indirect 
that the person who's looking at his bill for his insurance premium isn't thinking about factoring in the fact that uh, there's a lot of poor people showing up in the emergency room. It's just a little bit too tangled a thread for your average voter to take in. Right. People don't understand that limiting health care actually makes overall health care expenses rise tremendously for that very reason. Right. People who are most desperate are going to go in for emergency care. Emergency care is more expensive than preventative care or maintaining yourself when you're moderately sick rather than extremely sick. And a lot of what happens in emergency care are not emergencies. They're things that would be better treated by a doctor's appointment, but because they don't have insurance, they can't go to the doctor because the doctor's not giving free care. Now, these people who praise block grants and other means of cutting things for uh, fiscal responsibility and not putting the burden on our children for these horrible debts we're going up will turn right around and advocate huge tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires. Uh, if they were fiscally responsible, if that was really their concern, they wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. They're not looking out for the general welfare of the system. They're looking out for the welfare of a few people who happen to get dinged uh, in certain areas on their taxes at a pretty high rate. But uh, they're already making a lot of money. They shouldn't have to be too concerned about that. Now, this is Medicaid contraction, these block grants. What was or what is Medicaid expansion in the Affordable Care Act? Uh, I'm not sure I've got this down entirely. Why don't you talk about it for a bit first? Well, I don't really have it down either, but I think it is enough to say that this was an integral part to the Affordable Care Act. It provided more money to states to provide for people who were not able to participate in the insurance, let's just call it the insurance economy. All right. Insurance economy suggests you have a job that covers your health insurance or you're a private contractor who earns enough money to go out into the health care exchanges, which we'll talk about next, and go and purchase your own insurance. Uh, there are a group of people who are on Medicaid, and we were mentioning over and over again that being on Medicaid is never a desirable situation. It suggests that you earn too little money to actually go buy health insurance, or it means you are uh, disabled and unable to work for some reason, uh, or unable to work at a job that pays you well enough to buy insurance, but it may not provide your health insurance in the job. Uh, so being on Medicaid is never a desirable situation. We'll say that right up front. But if you are on Medicaid and you cannot participate in buying this insurance, expanding the coverage of Medicaid, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, only helped these people to get insured. And some of these people actually couldn't even get insurance. Even so, their qualifications didn't meet what the states required. A great many. Yeah. And what the federal government did at that point was to set some minimums to say uh, you must offer this to people who qualify by federal standards. You can't uh, be so stingy. And some of the services that weren't being offered had to be guaranteed. So it laid down some descriptions of what must be covered under Medicaid. Um, and the federal government still wound up paying for 90% of it, at least for the beginning part. But some of these governors were so ideologically bound against the whole idea that they opted out. And that's led to all kinds of complication. 
I want to mention one other terrible situation people get into. Medicare does not pay for long-term health care. That is, if you're an elderly person either dying or with a very prolonged recovery where you really need care either in home or a recovery facility, Medicare doesn't pay for that. And what happens frequently is that people in that situation will impoverish themselves by spending all their money, everything except they're allowed to keep their home, um, but spend all of their savings and everything so that they can go on Medicaid. And this is a real dilemma for families with an impoverished parent. Do the young people impoverish themselves for the long-term care so that they can hope to inherit some of mom or dad's savings? Or do they have mom or dad pay for everything um, and impoverish themselves so they can then afford for long-term health care? Long-term health care is a huge problem in this country, and it's uh, it's getting worse all the time. And long-term care facilities, uh, especially for people with memory problems with Alzheimer's or dementia, can be enormously expensive. Only people realize, you know, up to $10,000 per month for that kind of coverage. And there's been a tradition of putting people into facilities, even when they didn't need special care, where they could have been cared for at home. A lot of plans won't pay for home care. And that's another illogicality built into the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's another part of Medicaid is to cover retirees who were on Medicare uh, and they need a certain amount of coverage that isn't covered by Medicare and they can't afford this long-term care insurance. They've actually impoverished themselves to the level that they can't get into a long-term care facility without Medicaid. Right. Now let's talk a little bit about healthcare exchanges. That's a term that came up with the Affordable Care Act. What is a healthcare exchange? This was a Republican idea, as Democrats never failed to point out, but the public never seems to grasp. Um, and there was one set up pretty successfully in Massachusetts under Mitt Romney, which he praised to the skies, and then he turned around and opposed it for on a federal level. Um, the idea was that they were trying to avoid a, quote, socialized medicine, unquote, like England, uh, the United Kingdom has, and instead keep the private medical care system that we have with the for-profit drug industry and the private hospitals and the private doctors and all of that. And critically, the private insurers. And private insurers, Exactly. Uh, by the way, our insurance company is a nonprofit, which is something that we really like, but a lot of them are highly profitable. So they wanted to keep the free enterprise aspects of the medical industry intact, but find a way to pay for it or subsidize it through the government. Now, this is necessarily more expensive, but it goes in line with Republicans' ideas of shoring up businesses as opposed to paying direct benefits to individuals. So the idea of the healthcare exchanges is to make the marketplace of insurance easier to get into and guarantee that people would all be able to buy some health insurance if they could afford it, if they couldn't afford it, to give some money so that they could have it paid for for them and to help guide you through this bewildering maze of different insurance policies and to put a minimum floor on what these insurance policies had to cover in terms of what kinds of conditions were covered and what treatments would be paid for and so on. 
that was a huge step forward, but it's a very perilous step because as everybody's been acknowledging, it does very little to control costs. So it has become a huge subject of controversy is the exchange in the budget. Well, it can control costs if the promise is kept to subsidize insurance companies to the tune that helps them provide coverage at a lower price. Right. However, there are all kinds of ways to undermine the Affordable Care Act. That's a big one. And that's the one the Republicans have been both advocating was cutting those subsidies and restricting them. And Trump has talked about doing away with them altogether. Mm-hmm. What they do is they keep hacking away at the system and then saying, look how bad it is. It's really terrible. And they chop another piece of it out and say, oh, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. We got to get rid of it. Right. Well, they are effectively getting rid of it by doing that. So, uh, you know, whether they pass a law or a bill that eliminates the system or they just hack away at the system. When the Affordable Care Act passed, there were enough backdoor uh, workarounds in place. Let's face it, a lot of Republicans needed in there in order to get the votes that they needed. They had to put them in. There were enough backdoor hacks into the system that would allow for things like, well, we'll cut subsidies. We just won't fund subsidies this year. Well, that's the very thing that makes the whole thing work right is uh you know the subsidies and also the individual mandate was another big factor that makes the whole system work and if they could get away with cutting away at those two things those effectively are the things that make the whole system work uh so whether you pass a bill that repeals it or you do these other things one way or another there are mechanisms that imperil the system I think the general public doesn't understand how important Medicaid is. It covers far more people than Medicare. And everybody thinks that Medicare is just this huge program. Well, the people who reach the end of their lives go off of Medicare. And so it has a certain limiting factor to it. Medicaid um, has this enormous reach, particularly under the ACA. Yeah. And so an enormous number of people, poor people, will be devastated if that shrinks down drastically or goes away. Yeah, the healthcare exchanges being subsidized, the Medicaid expansion, and the individual mandate. Let's say those are the three legs of the stool there that hold the system up. But if you can cut away at those three things, you effectively can dismantle the system as it stands. Now, the problem with the exchange, there's several problems with the exchanges. One is pretty intractable, and that is the whole market is sort of crazy. And the average person doesn't have the patience or the knowledge to thread their way through and compare all these things. The idea is there's supposed to be this open marketplace and that people will try to get the best deal they can afford. And it's just too hard. It's just too hard, even with the exchanges that allow you to find the best. The other thing is with all the pressures that conservatives have put on the system, more and more insurance companies are opting out of the system. So the exchanges in some places are reduced to having only one option and therefore they don't serve the function that they were supposed to. Uh, you're not able to decide. There's no competition going on. Besides that, when the federal system was first set up to cover those states that had opted out of the exchanges, 
It was badly done. It was rushed in. It was not done properly and it crashed and it caused all kinds of problems. And that has stuck in people's minds and in politicians' mouths forever so that they continue to call it a failed system, although those errors were fixed. But uh, Oregon had similar problems when they set up theirs that it just did not work at first for a long time. It took a lot of tinkering to make it work. The real kicker to all of this is, okay, you go through all of this and you think, phew, that's done. Twelve months later, you have to do it all over again because all of a sudden the insurance you chose last time either went out of business or they've upped their premium so much you can't afford it anymore or suddenly you need more insurance than you did because your medical situation has changed. All of these things can mean every year you may potentially have to go through this horrid shopping experience again. <laughs> Not fun at all. No, no. Is there a way around this, Paul? Is there any system out there in the world that would eliminate all of this headache? Has there been anywhere in the world that has figured this out? Just about everywhere in the highly developed world except here. There are some other countries that have combined private public systems. Netherlands is often cited. But they all have much more government regulation to keep from going crazy the way that ours does. And they're not nearly as complicated. But what usually gets advocated by people who want to really reform the system is a single-payer system. What is a single-payer system? Well, I've seen a piece of satire saying that conservatives would like to see a single-payer system in which uh, the person who pays for all your medical expenses is yourself. And so that's a single-payer, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, one-payer... It's you. <laughs> What's usually meant by single payer by the people who advocate it is that taxes are paid into a healthcare system and then all medical bills are paid for out of that. And there's none of this nonsense about all these supplemental and Medigap and donut holes and income testing and so on. And so you wouldn't have nonsense like where Medicare is not allowed to negotiate for drug prices. You have one big system and they say, OK, you drug companies, um, we see you had a huge profit margin last year. We're just not going to pay for X amount more. And by the way, no point in buying those expensive ads anymore and doing all those expensive campaigns because um, we're the ones that are paying for this and we're working for the patient's interest. So that's one of the aims. Now, you can get all the way to having a public care system in which the doctors are employed by the government. That's true in a lot of countries. And it's true in our Veterans Administration medical care system, which has some problems. But uh, unlike Medicare, the veteran system is able to negotiate for lowered prices for drugs, which is really interesting. But the public that's covered by Medicare is not allowed to do that. Anyway, um, you can also say get rid of the whole system of for-profit hospitals. Uh, you could have publicly owned hospitals. Those are all various ways of dealing with it. But you can still have a system that's partly private that is single payer, as long as you have some measures in place to avoid the ridiculous over expenditures that we have for profits. The idea that people get rich by investing in the healthcare system while people are suffering and dying is really uh, abhorrent to a lot of us. It just does not make sense. Just the definition of single payer means that the government is the single payer, right? Not to confuse the issues. Right. 
the tax-funded system that all citizens pay to, and so we would just have one insurance policy. Yes, the government becomes the insurer. That's your insurance company is the government itself, but there's only one of them, and they are the only payer out of benefits to pay for your medical care. Uh, you're talking about the um, something like the British system, where the doctors are paid by the government. In this single-payer construction, it doesn't really work that way. The doctors are still out on their own, having their own practices. It's just that the insurance is restructured. Right to be paid for by the government. Yeah, you can also, uh, in a lot of those systems, pay extra if you want things that aren't covered by the government insurance, like if you decide you want a facelift, you know, or um, implant some hair follicles, <laughs> uh, something like that, you could still do it out of pocket. So uh, it doesn't mean that you're forbidden to have medical procedures necessarily, but there are always some kind of limits. But this is what caused the huge controversy back in the 80s over health maintenance organizations. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. HMO, right? Health Maintenance Organization. And HMO. Okay, so that was a thing where you buy into medical care, where your coverage is limited to a certain number of doctors who belong to the HMO and a certain number of hospitals, and they will pay for certain procedures. So it's a package of insurance and health care. Kaiser is the biggest one, right? That's the example that most people know. Yes. And uh, people began to get very upset that the HMO is not covering, you know, this experimental uh, cancer treatment that my mother desperately needs or, you know, this drug that I really think is better than the one the doctor prefers and so on. So there was a huge backlash against HMOs, and a lot of criticism of them. It's interesting that although that's still around, there is less fear of that now. People have begun to realize that all insurance plans have limits. You know, you can get as free market as you want, and the more free market you get, the more limited they are. So the idea that somehow licensing HMOs was a terrible decision, um, people are now not really debating that much anymore. Well, out here in regular insurance land, uh, not in the HMO world, we have our preferred provider network. Right. And that operates pretty much identical to the way an HMO operates. It limits the doctors you can go to effectively by uh, saying, well, you could go to a different doctor if you're interested in paying more <laughs> for that coverage. Uh you can go out of network, but as long as you stay in network, you're going to get the full benefit of your insurance. And who doesn't really want that? Well, if you're in your network, there are going to be some health insurance networks that are run by the Catholic Church, for example, that will not cover abortion. Right. That's their prerogative. But uh, if you're in one of those networks, you're not going to be able to get certain coverage. Yeah, and I think that's taken the heat off the HMOs because all insurance is limiting like that now. There is also some encouragement for people to enter group health practices where you can get your medical care from a group of doctors who agree to charge lower fees. And they can do that partly because of efficiencies in the system where the insurance is not so complicated. And so they don't have to spend a lot of their time with that kind of thing. We actually get most of our medical care through a group. And I like the fact that they have centralized medical records. And when I go to see a doctor, they see what my previous treatments have been, my previous diagnoses, uh, what drugs I'm taking. They check with me each time to see if anything has changed. And although it's not perfect, 
uh, it avoids some of the kinds of conflicts you get when you have a lot of different doctors you're going to who aren't exchanging information with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, ways to get to public option or to single payer. Yes, it's single payer, public option. One of the things that's been advocated is simply lowering the age for Medicare eligibility. What you could do, and this is something that Hillary Clinton was sort of reluctantly pushed into in the last campaign by Bernie Sanders, um, who was advocating single payer, um, was saying, okay, well, let's lower it to, I think, 55 was what they were talking about at that time. Take it down 10 years, cover some more people. And if we ever got to single payer insurance in this country, I think that's likely the way it would happen. It would have to incrementally go down bit by bit by saying, okay, let's cover a few more people and a few more people and a few more people. So that's one approach to it. And Sanders is now going around the country advocating Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. So instead of throwing out Medicare, as he seemed to be advocating during the previous campaign and replacing it with a whole new system and saying, OK, for now, this is a way to make the transition is saying Medicare really works pretty well. And most people who are in it like it. Let's just give it to everybody. And there is popular support for this idea, is there not? Yeah. The most fascinating thing that's happened is that as time has gone on, conservatives and liberals alike and middle of the road people and people who don't pay any attention to politics have come to believe that government has an important role in guaranteeing that people can get medical care and medical insurance. This has been a remarkable turnaround from just a year ago when that was a minority position to now becoming a majority position and one that seems to be growing. It's often pointed out by sociologists that it is much easier for people to get rid of something um, with somebody else's getting that they're not benefiting from. But once you've got a benefit, it is much harder to give it up, even if it might be to your advantage, say, in lower taxes. So people have begun to feel that the ACA provides them benefits. They don't always ascribe it to ACA. There was a long period in the end of last year when surveys were showing that a great many people who were terribly opposed to Obamacare and thought it was a complete abomination uh, were nevertheless really wanted to keep the Affordable Care Act and didn't understand that the two are the very same thing. There's a woman that was speaking recently criticizing the Affordable Care Act and talking about how uh, it's really has to be gotten rid of because it's such a terrible burden. And she said, and um, personally, I'm pretty fortunate because I'm not 26 yet. I'm still covered by my parents' insurance, so uh, I don't really need the Affordable Care Act. Well, it's the Affordable Care Act that allowed her to be covered under her parents' prescription at that age. (laughs) Right. And these can be pretty intelligent people, and yet they're still baffled by all of this. So we've got a situation in which people hate paying taxes to support the system. On the one hand, that's still very unpopular. Hate being required to buy insurance and think that they ought to have insurance and that the government has an important role to play in it. That's the majority position now in the United States, and it's a dilemma. It's really hard to deal with. Now, you mentioned lowering the age to be eligible for Medicare. That's in order to get closer to single-payer insurance for everybody. Uh, Another option is called the public option, which some states have toyed with. California is trying to do something like this that would give people the option 
of paying into a government-run program. Now, that's going to be very, very difficult to implement uh, because the economics of it are not very favorable if only a very few people choose to do that. Well, also, it provides terrific competition for the private insurance industry. If people are able to opt for a plan that's paid for out of taxes instead, and if they can enforce some cost-saving measures, and if enough people sign up for it, which are all a big if, then that undermines the private insurance system. And they are enormously successful as lobbyists with representatives and senators and getting their interests looked after. And so they have been extremely hostile to this idea. Even if it could be made financially successful, they just don't want that kind of competition. Right. But it would be more effective, possibly, if there were a way for a state to just toss out private insurers entirely and just demonstrate, look, here's a government run program that is providing health care at a lower cost for everybody. And we're doing very well with it. Uh, that was a lead that got followed in Canada. Uh, as I remember, the province of um, Manitoba, I believe, was the first one to have a single-payer health care program that served as the model for the rest of the country to follow suit. Another idea is to sort of keep around something like the Affordable Care Act, make sure that those three legs of the stool are well-supported, Medicaid expansion, individual mandate, and subsidies to the insurance companies that are providing health insurance for everyone to make sure that those are all in place, uh, but to do it more like how Switzerland does it, where they have only private insurers, but private insurers are limited. Uh, they cannot make profit on basic legally required health insurance. They can make a profit on expanded and supplemental health insurance, but on those basic things that they provide, they are not allowed to turn a profit. These things are very regulated in other countries where they do still have private insurance. That might be a way of making the current system that we have work a little bit better. You know, I was just talking about how people are reluctant to give up benefits they already have. But, of course, the people who are most reluctant and most effective at making their reluctance felt are the insurance companies. Yeah. These <laughs> tremendous profits. They don't want to give those up. Right. But it can't be repeated too often that America pays more. It has the most expensive medical costs and insurance costs of any country in the world. And we are down near the bottom of the developed nations having the best medical care. We really do not have the best medical care in the world. That keeps being repeated all the time. It's just not the case. We pay more for less. Right. We used to be able to say, well, maybe we don't have the most widespread access to medical care, but at the very top end, we have all the best systems and the best surgeries and the best surgeons and all of that. Well, more and more, that's not really the case either. So really the name of the game in healthcare, for me anyway, let's see if you agree, is this idea of making sure that coverage is available to everyone and that everyone has a basic level at which they are being cared for medically and they have the healthcare that they need to perform their best so that it can be a benefit for general society. You know, you just mentioned access. 
Let's finish this episode by talking a little bit about that term. The Republicans who were trying to abolish Obamacare kept talking about our plan will guarantee access for everybody. And that is such a misleading word. What they meant by that is you won't necessarily have adequate insurance, but if you want to buy insurance out of your own pocket and if you can afford to pay for medical care without insurance, you'll have access. That means nothing. It means being uninsured. And they all kept repeating it. It was very coordinated. They were all on TV talking about we're guaranteeing access and our plan will make sure you'll have access. And uh, That's like, you know, the right to buy donuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> and donut holes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's end on donut holes again. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, that was possibly a poorly chosen word there. But access doesn't mean access. It kind of means limiting access, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, Paul, so much more to talk about on this topic. We're going to get off of the insurance-related terms and talk about some other things like generic drugs and death panels. These are maybe more medical terms, but uh, I want to pick this up next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening. <laughs>